Welcome to the Christian Atheist, where faith and reason fuse in the Incarnation. Episode number 115, JEDP, The Mount Ebaldefixio, and C.S. Lewis, Part 8. Quote, Everywhere, except in theology, there has been a vigorous growth of skepticism about skepticism itself from C.S. Lewis's Modern Theology and Biblical Criticism. I promised last week that we would have to return to this statement before we closed this series. This penultimate episode of our series can be understood as a delivery on that promise. What Lewis seeks to do for his audience of divinity students in this speech, and by extension for us, is to encourage, quote, a due agnosticism. End quote. And agnosticism, the acknowledgement of the fundamental limitations of our knowledge as finite creatures, is one of the basic doctrines we have been preaching on the Christian atheist since 2019. This is why we continually point to Socrates, the father of Western philosophy. Forgive me, please, if we close this series on the grounds of my home turf, philosophy. Ignorance, Socrates tells us, is the default condition of man. Lewis agrees. Quote, For agnosticism is, in a sense, what I am preaching. I do not wish to reduce the skeptical element in your minds. I am only suggesting that it need not be reserved exclusively for the New Testament and the creeds. Try doubting something else. Lewis goes on to suggest that we might begin by being skeptical about one particular foundational belief and the procedural logic that proceeds from it, upon which all of the modern attacks on Western theism rest. Quote, Such skepticism might, I think, begin at the very beginning, with the thought which underlies the whole demythology of our time. End quote. We live in an era of pervasive and inquisition-enforced academic orthodoxy. Daring to deviate, to be skeptical, can subject you to the tribunal. I have faced it in recent years. But more famously, Dr. Jordan Peterson has, this week, been court-ordered by the Academic Inquisition of Canada into a re-education regimen for daring to speak what he believes to be the truth. What is fascinating to me in this regime, and would be amusing were it not so maliciously and spitefully destructive, is the assumption on the part of the Orthodox that they hold the mantle of rational skepticism and claim for themselves the mantle of virtue, when, in fact, they are an imperious, conventional, unquestioning orthodoxy. I was a part of that orthodoxy for 25 years, though harboring private doubts increasingly as my research unfolded, as documented in our Through the Looking Glass series. If monistic materialism, the idea that only matter exists, is the metaphysics of our contemporary world, it is founded on an even more fundamental metaphysical conviction, 
one which, though presently dominant, never before in human history enjoyed anything approaching society-wide acceptance. Because prior to the 19th century and Hegel, it was a distinctly minority position. Humanity sees, what is evident, the world as a mystery, because we are ignorant of the truth. We cannot know reality, cannot have certainty of knowledge. All people everywhere live agnosticism in regard to it, because by definition, it cannot be known apart from faith. It is the question of the transcendent. There are two defined epistemic positions in relation to this question, and an infinity of gradations, that is, undefined positions between them. Affirmation and denial, both of which are faith positions, corresponding roughly to theism and atheism. While Hegelianism is best defined by its denial of transcendence, the immanentizing of reality, neither Hegel nor any of his intellectual progeny ever actually reach the defined position of atheism, mostly because it is impossible to live as a rational human being in full denial of transcendence, even if one can intellectually assent to it, call oneself an atheist, believe there is no transcendent reality, or God, as I did for 25 years. Denial of transcendence is a metaphysical position, a faith position, that cannot be consistently lived, but only believed. It can, however, be made procedural, pragmatic, and it has been made so, resulting in the modern world, modern theology, scientism, and the variety of atheist movements. It is the tendency more or less successful, to purge transcendence, God, from our thought and practice. Lewis refers to it here as demythologizing, with 20th century theologian Rudolf Bultmann in mind. Demythologizing is the procedure of systematically removing transcendence from our theology, philosophy, psychology, and life. It is, essentially, skepticism toward the old worldview. It is, in that sense, reactionary, or, I would argue, toward the world or reality itself as we experience it. This is the procedure of the higher critics. Boltman justifies it as a conflict between science and mythology, or to put it in terms more congenial to this viewpoint, between science and superstition. But, is this conflict real? Or is it itself an article of faith? Asking this question in this context puts the debate on the ground Lewis is suggesting here. Perhaps it is time to be skeptical about these skeptical procedures. Instead of naively, and uncritically assuming their validity. Assuming, that is, believing, the truth of the worldview that engenders them. Lewis expressed a hope here, 
1959, that the higher criticism would be a passing fad. This hope has proven naive. As he failed to recognize, I think, that this approach reflects a broader Hegelian zeitgeist that was on the ascendant, not in decline. To examine this issue further, I would like to turn to the work of Hans Georg Gadamer and Paul Ricoeur, both 20th century philosophers. There are two approaches to reading our experience, whether it be written texts or, more broadly, the search for meaning in our world. In this sense, science, too, is engaged in the interpretive process, reading the natural world to make sense of it. We call this interpretative process a hermeneutic. There are two pragmatic approaches to any text, a hermeneutic of faith and a hermeneutic of suspicion, and we choose between the two. In the hermeneutics of faith, we approach our text in an attitude of openness and humility, seeking to learn what it can teach us. We approach with reverence, in the sense that this text represents an other from which we might gain insight in dialogical interaction. We also approach with the confidence that if we are alert, careful, rational, and willing to put forth the effort required, we can, and perhaps will, dis or uncover truth that can change or enlighten us in an important and valuable way. This approach has a positive confidence both in the self that approaches and in the text that is approached. Importantly, it has faith that truth can be discovered, that it exists, that our search for it is not in vain. In legal terms, a hermeneutics of faith approaches the text as though it is innocent until proven guilty, as in English common law. In the hermeneutics of suspicion, however, this is all reversed. We approach our text with suspicion, doubt, skepticism, seeking to uncover what is hiding from us, deliberately or inadvertently. We approach with irreverence, assuming ill will, or, at the very least, deception. If we are not to be deceived, we must constantly be on our guard against the text. We must read between the lines, see behind the page, delve below the surface. We must refuse the appeals and seductive attractions, the easy answers it may offer. We must be interested in what is said only as a means to discover what is not said or is being concealed. Such an approach to any text is best done by an established critical methodology designed to reveal what is hidden, to unveil lies and deceptions. It is one-sided, as all the work is on the part of the interpreter, seeking to remove the veil of deception that this method always assumes is there. In this sense, then, the approach is more closed than open. It seeks to expose the truth in opposition to the text, not to learn from it. Maybe better, this approach seeks to learn from a text 
not what the text is saying, but from what it is hiding. It seeks to expose the fraud it suspects, or knows, is there, not to engage what the text is expressing, which is, in a very real sense, irrelevant. In legal terms, the hermeneutics of suspicion is inquisitional. The text is guilty, unless proven innocent. Having these two hermeneutical approaches before us, we should easily see which is the preferred or dominant strategy today. Critical race theory teaches us to assume racism in every instance. The only hermeneutical difficulty is to uncover it, to find it in each case. This is identical to the Marxist view of capitalist oppression. Even in our approach to literature today, we are taught not to learn positive lessons from it, but to uncover the hidden oppression, sexism, privilege concealed in Shakespeare's plays, in parent-child and marital relations, even in science. The hermeneutic of suspicion is the only received method of interpreting our world, especially in academia but increasingly more even in popular culture. We would be mistaken, however, were we to think that this view is new in any sense of that term. It is the view of Cain in Genesis 4. The universe is rigged against him. His sacrifice is not accepted. The judgments of God, that is, reality, are unfair as he rejects the correction that reality gives to his actions, he becomes angry and resentful. Cain looks on the universe, God's good creation, with suspicion rather than faith in its goodness. He will not be corrected, will not conform himself to a higher order, to truth, in order to better himself and his position but insists on his own rational vision, that reality bend to his preconceptions. As Gadamer says, these two options, faith in goodness or suspicion, are always open to us. This is what I have called fundamental faith throughout the Christian atheist. It is the starting point of our view of the world. Is it good? as God declares? Or is it bad? Is it truthful or deceitful? Can we trust it, or must we always be on our guard against it? When we choose one of these options, though in truth we never wholly choose one or the other, we choose a whole series of other positions that will logically flow from them. I first became aware of this dichotomy when I was studying Hegel's Encyclopedia of the Philosophical Sciences in a graduate seminar at the University of California, Irvine. As we read our way through this text, I began to see Hegel's universal spirit engaged in a never-ending series of self-deceptive strategies. Hegel called this the, quote, cunning of reason embedding the ontological structure of bad faith in the very being of reality, and along with it, a corresponding ends-justify-the-means ethics that becomes his theodicy, his solution to the problem of evil. 
the line between good and evil that Solzhenitsyn traces across all human hearts, that stark boundary between right and wrong, good and bad, becomes for Hegel a process of working out the good, of evil becoming good, a vast evolutionary panorama of gray ascending toward white, making that line not a boundary, but a continuum of shading as the very fabric of existence. This is the philosophy of immanence. This is the evolutionary assumption. Everything is slowly turning into everything else. There are no sharp boundaries, no well-defined distinctions, but only an evolving field of gray. Chesterton says this in The Everlasting Man. It is because the critics are not looking at things in a dry light that they cannot see the difference between black and white. It is because they are in a particular mood of reaction and revolt that they have a motive for making out that all the white is dirty gray, and the black not so black as it is painted. We have wandered far afield in this episode, but we have laid out the tools with which we can complete this series next time. A few quick summary points will prepare us to close our investigations. We have, as a culture, adopted a hermeneutics of suspicion as our default position. Reality, we are to assume, has an agenda. This is historicism, the spirit that animates our world. If only we allow the natural evolutionary processes to carry us along, things will get better. This is the Hegelian worldview become dominant. It is progressivism. It is the source of the scholarly skepticism about which Lewis is asking us to be skeptical. If Lewis is preaching agnosticism, as he says, it is the agnosticism that takes us back to our common-sense rationality, that causes us to look honestly at the world, back to the Socratic recognition that, quote, we must take our ignorance seriously, because, quote, we know not, oh, we know not, end quote. We must dare to question to challenge the pseudo-religious orthodoxy that has overwhelmed our thinking. Not because we know better, but because we dare to take our ignorance seriously. It is time, indeed, for a profound skepticism about skepticism itself. Join me again next week in again embracing agnosticism. I... I'm a Christian, with the searching and skeptical mind of an atheist. I don't want to believe anything that isn't true. I know both sides of the looking glass, and I know them with open eyes. I choose Christ's side. I invite you to join me from wherever you stand before the looking glass. That's this week's episode. 
Thanks for listening. And remember, you can have your religious cake and eat it too. You can have reason, respect for science, a 21st century worldview, and be a Christian.